You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. The NCAA Women's and Men's Tournaments march on, and we'll continue to have all sorts of action tonight. But we start with the chaos of last night when we left the show. When everything was fine and dandy at the end of the show, it looked like we were going to get an interesting ending to UConn uh, taking on Baylor. It looked like it was going to be one of those games that you wanted to watch every last second of, but it became... The worst nightmare of it, a game that's marred in controversy. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and all of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. Sarah, let's get to straight, straight to some straight talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. For me, I'm watching the end of the game, and all I said was, oh, no. As there was a a controversial no call at the end of the game, it looked like uh, there was a foul. No foul was called. That's how it ends. And my immediate moment there when I see UConn win that way is my heart sinks because all it's going to do is fuel the wrong conversation. Instead of talking about what a great game it was last night, we're going to talk about a blown call at the end. I agree, except I will say that I was heartened today to see there was a lot of conversation about the game and the call, and Kim Mulkey's comments, which we're going to get to. So it did feel like it didn't fall into the usual traps as much as usual. It was, in fact, the most-watched women's tournament game in a decade. That includes Final Four games and championships. And uh, the women's tournament doubled the men's in social media engagement last night. Almost 40 million impressions. Uh, The men were nowhere near that. So we're really seeing... The conversations around these games, which are great games that are high-paced and well-played and interesting and feature superstars, uh, dominate and and not get caught up in the usual ways of, is UConn bad for basketball, right? At least we're talking about the same things we argue about in men's games, which is bad call or, like, good no call. Um, And all I'll say to that, Fitz, because I know we want to get to tonight, too, and, and also Kim's comments, is you had to watch the whole game to at least understand the context. It was a foul. But... It's a hero ball play that wasn't a great play at the end with time running out, running up into two players, an official that might not have been in the right spot, a game that was getting no calls all night long up and down the court. It's a tough one in the final seconds to hinge the game on it. And whether it was a foul or not, you could have that argument, but you also always hear coaches say, don't put your game in the hands of the officials. Don't make it about a subjective call at the end, especially in a game like that that was bully ball all night and a lot of things went unwhistled. Yeah, and I said this on the ESPN Radio Sports Beat that so many affiliates hear throughout the course of the the day. Look, quarterbacks make bad throws, right? Players make bad plays in games. Our favorite teams screw up sometimes. Refs screw up sometimes. I looked at that and I thought it was a foul. It should have been called, but at the end of the day, it wasn't. Refs screw up sometimes. It doesn't take anything away from, to me, what was a great, and, and you're absolutely right, very physical game between everybody. UConn advances in a tight one, and uh, that has uh, obviously, at some point, leads to conversation about the other side of it. Uh, Baylor not uh, necessarily as happy uh, with the outcome of the game, and uh, not only that, Kim Mulkey's gotten herself into a little bit of hot water with some of the comments she made, there. Yeah, absolutely, and this is, of course, not the first time for Kim Mulkey. She said that anyone who might decide not to send their daughters to Baylor after the massive sexual assault scandal should be knocked in the face for saying that. Uh, She apologized for the wording, but not for the sentiment. She also encouraged Brittany Griner to hide her sexuality. Um, She is someone who is a very successful coach, 
uh, but not always uh, wise in the way that she uh, deals with things as a leader, as a as a representative, as an educator. Last night, another example. She got COVID back around Christmas after throwing a party and had some very strong words for how it's all about the almighty dollar for the NCAA and they don't care about me or these kids or who's sick, probably because it was a detriment at the time to her squad. But now that her squad's out and she's on the way out, this is what she had to say about the importance of COVID. I don't think my words will matter. After the games today and tomorrow, there's four teams left, I think, on the men's side and the women's side. They need to dump the COVID testing. Wouldn't it be a shame to keep COVID testing and then you've got kids that end up having test positive or something and they don't get to play in a Final Four? So you need to just forget the, sh- the, the, the COVID test and let the four teams that are playing in each Final Four go battle it out. Yeah, you know what she almost swore there because she thinks it's S-H-I, you know what, to do testing for COVID, a virus that has killed almost 550,000 people and left thousands of others with long-term conditions that we don't know if they can be cured. A virus that has resulted in people not being able to attend funerals or hold weddings. But of course, we should ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist solely for the sake of the final four of a basketball tournament that has yet been untouched by the virus. This is not a big focal point. I, it is lost on me, Fitz, why she would bring this up out of nowhere. She wasn't asked about it. Yeah, and, and that's the confusing part of it. Like, why is this her arbitrary line in the sand? Now it would be, you know, heartbreaking for somebody not to play. Like, we saw one game on the men's side, obviously, uh, that wasn't able to be p- played because of the virus, and that was heartbreaking in and of itself. Like, anytime you have that, that possibility, of course, everybody's going to be stressed out about it. But, Sarah, realistically, this is why they're in a bubble. This is why they're supposed to be in a controlled environment, is to keep everything as safe as possible. And ultimately, the safety of everybody involved, I say it all the time, like uh, the schools have a couple of obligations they make no matter what you do when you go to that college. One is to prepare you for your next chapter in life, and two is to do it in a way that keeps you safe. I mean, those are things that, that are bare-bone minimum requirements for schools when they when for any student that goes there. So just because you play basketball doesn't mean that you should be put at a different level of risk and we've already done some of that when it comes to putting people in the tournament but to imply or to flat out say that we shouldn't be testing anymore at this point seems absolutely misinformed and ignorant to me it's super ignorant and also nonsensical i'm I'm, like i said i'm lost as to why she would say that on her way out other than just sour grapes other than maybe that's been her opinion all season long and now that they're not playing anymore she could just throw it out there um, because she was someone who didn't seem to take it that seriously. And if you watched last night, she was like a Cecily Strong SNL character with her mask. It really, it it felt like someone who had never worn one before. She couldn't figure out how to wear it just for the press conference. Uh, so certainly not someone that you're taking pandemic tips from. But it was just weird all around. And to your point, there have been moments that we've talked about that and the call instead of the game. And that's disappointing because it was an excellent game. It was hard fought. And, you know, for that Baylor squad, it was a heartbreaking way to go out. It would have been heartbreaking for either. I'm very interested if D.G. Richards hadn't gotten hurt, if Baylor would have won. It was her injury that, that sparked that 19-0 run by UConn. But we don't know. Maybe Paige Beckers ignites it into into high gear uh, and, and stops that run regardless um, and gets UConn back into it without D.D.'s injury. I'm just glad that people are embracing these games and how great they are, Fitz, because I think the women's tournament's been spectacular this year. And we're getting a couple more games tonight from some teams that have good stories uh, in playing against each other. And I hope they get a similar amount of attention to what we saw last night. Yeah, it's going to be tough for any game the rest of the way to beat what we saw last night. But tonight, right. 7, uh, 7 p.m., uh, so just tipped off Texas, South Carolina. Also, we have Louisville, Stanford on the women's side. Both of those 
uh, are going to be spectacular games. And you're right, we, we still have a lot of great teams left. So as infatuated as we all are, rightfully so, with the matchup that we got between UConn and Baylor, I would just challenge everybody to you know step back before you think it can't get any better because there are still some really good teams uh, out there ready to face UConn next. So we'll see how it goes moving forward. We'll keep you updated on the games tonight. That's some straight talk. Straight talk wireless, no contracts, no compromise. Speaking of that, can the Pac-12 keep their impressive tournament run going? We've got so much tournament uh, go action going on tonight. We'll have an expert tell us how the Pac-12 could keep some momentum coming next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM channel. Lady Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. The college basketball season has reached tournament time. That means the Wendy's Wooden Watch has announced the final ballot. Go to ESPN.com, search Wendy's, sorry, search Wooden Watch for the list of Wooden Award nominees. The John R. Wooden Award presented by Wendy's. And one gets you guys caught up on the score right now. We've got South Carolina up on Texas 14-4. to Very early, obviously, in the women's game. So uh, we'll keep you updated on that. But there's also a couple of tips going off on the West Coast. The Pac-12 getting the opportunity to get some love as USC is going to take on Gonzaga. We all know the undefeated Gonzaga story at this point. That's a six seed taking on a one seed. And then the 11th seeded UCLA Bruins, who snuck in. Remember, they needed a play-in game against Michigan State to get into this thing. And now they'll take on Michigan, a top seed, for their opportunity to try and advance. And Sarah, you know, it's just a reminder that a lot of us got the Pac-12 completely wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the jokes have always been while you were sleeping, right, that we didn't stay up late enough to watch them. But I think so much of it, too, is I would argue the Pac-12 are some of the teams most disrupted by pandemic protocols, especially early on. If you remember how many teams and cities and, and places out west were really struck hard by COVID and required a lot of uh, lack of practices, places to play, et cetera. And so even as the teams got into action and looked good, I think it was just so hard to compare them to the other squads. I mean, if you look across the, the, the landscape of the tournament, it's pretty clear there was some bad seeding in both the men's and women's tournament um, that you can't necessarily blame the committee for. They were trying so hard to compare apples and oranges all season. Um, I, I do think there's also just some luck of the draw. We, we were talking on Around the Horn today, and I think Houston is a fascinating team because I have no idea what I'm watching. They've beaten four double-digit squads. Like, is the balloon getting popped as soon as they face a top seed? Or can they only play who's in front of them? And we need to respect that they got where they are. Um, I, I think I think that's part of it is we haven't seen a lot of these teams play against each other until the tournament. Well, by the way, around the horn, did you win today? I did not. Wow. Do I need to have, like, a sit-down with reality? Yeah, right. I think... Very you know, clearly rigged. It, yeah. It's time, you know, rally call me, buddy. Like, we're going to have to have a serious <laughs> talk if my girl doesn't start winning some of these again. Uh, so with all the, the conversation about winning, uh, Seth Greenberg, one of our best ESPN college basketball analysts, help, helped us out a little bit earlier today when he figured out how some upsets could happen. This is what he said specifically about how USC can do the impossible. How can USC pull off the upset against the Zags? First and foremost, this is a Gonzaga team that scores 50 points a game in the paint. They're not getting it against us because you know what? We got 14 feet of Mobley. We're going to protect the front of the rim. They've never seen a zone like us. Oh, by the way, we've got to take Gonzaga out of transition. How do we do that? Good shot selection and take care of the ball. Make simple plays, but be aggressive. Finally, Drew Timmy. We're going to defend him. We're going to make him defend. The best way to defend him is to get him in foul trouble. Evan Mobley, you're a lottery pick. You might be the second pick in the draft. You might be the first pick in the draft. We're playing through you. Take it right at Timmy. We get him out of the game. We're going to be in pretty good shape. 
It's, mm. I mean, it sounds like an easy enough game plan. It's just difficult to do. USC, by the way, <laughs> holding opponents to 32.2 field goal percentage through three tournament games, which is great, but they're taking on an offense that just scores so dynamically and so quickly. Yeah, the Gonzaga offense, uh, people you know can't get enough of, but I think even their, their defense is, is undersold in terms of our conversations. The number of times I've been scrolling social media and someone's like, the, you know, Gonzaga's an NBA squad. Like, they're taking it too far. Certainly physicality-wise, they're not. But there is a ton of talent there. There's a very good reason they're undefeated and why they're the favorite. So, in my opinion, this is where the road ends for USC. Um, but I do think that's an excellent breakdown of how they could get it done. I love the stats and info breakdown, by the way, and they did a nice job of, of pointing out Gonzaga averaging 49.5 points per game in the paint this season. That's more than any major conference team. USC is allowing 24.2 paint, uh, points per game this season. That's third fewest. So it seems like that's you know where the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. I would argue that USC hasn't faced anybody that plays in the paint like Gonzaga does. So right. while I respect what USC has been able to accomplish, it's not going to work uh, in this matchup. Now, that's one side of what we'll see from the men. There's also UCLA taking on Michigan. And again, this is UCLA team that barely got into the tournament, and now they're on this incredible incredible run. So the question is, how do they pull off the upset against Juwan Howard in Michigan? This is what Seth Greenberg said earlier. You deal with Michigan, you got to deal with Hunter Dickinson. We got to defend him early, but more importantly, when he doubles him, we're not going to double him until he puts it down. Cody, we're going to bail you out a little bit. We're going to give you help. And then Franz Wagner, we're going to get him in foul trouble. Jaime Jaquez, we're going right at him. Mid post, put him in isolations. You're going to play physical. You're going to attack him. And then finally, the key matchup, Tiger Campbell, Mike Smith. Tiger, we need you to play your very best. This has got to be your career best effort. You need to fight over those screens. You've got to win that one-on-one battle with Michael Smith doesn't mean scoring. It means fighting over over screens. It means being physical, putting pressure on him, making him defend. We do those three things. We got a chance to get to the final four. And what a fascinating matchup this is. You know, we've talked a lot about how Michigan lost Isaiah Livers, and somehow it hasn't seemed to matter. We talked about you know how much COVID has affected their season. The UCLA side, they backed into the tourney. They had four straight losses and didn't look good early on. But, you, you know, I mentioned Friday that Ken Palm had them as the most likely of the lower seeds to get the upset, which they did in that round. And here they show up against a very confident top-seeded Michigan team that, again, I hate to, to go chalk on this, but I think this is where the run ends for UCLA tonight. Yeah, I agree with you totally. And look – you got to figure out a way if you're UCLA to slow Michigan scoring down. I just don't think they can. And speaking of scoring, it didn't take any time for Gonzaga to uh, to get out in front. They opened up to set. This is not a football score, I promise. Seven nothing right away. <laughs> USC just took a timeout, trying to collect their breath there. So Gonzaga doing exactly, I think, what we expected. They're scoring points, and, and that's a little bit echoes what we talked about yesterday, even with UConn when we were talking about their offense. Gonzaga and UConn are very similar from the men's side to the women's side to me in the sense that in the time it takes you to go into the kitchen, grab a beer, come back in, sit down, all of a sudden you're just blown away that the score changed. How much? That's what Gonzaga does, and they do it so quickly. And I'll tell you what's happening right now, too. On the women's side, speaking of pace and a team that can get up on you quick, South Carolina up on Texas 16-4 to in the first. Um, Just an absolute beating to start this one. And we talked last night to Texas coach Vic Schaefer and and the history that he has going against Dawn Staley and her squads back when he was with Mississippi State. You remember that there was that incredible 
buzzer beater to beat UConn and maybe a little of the air uh, comes out of the tires there and you're not as ready for that championship game once you get past UConn. Um, but he, of course, with a new team now, had an incredible upset win and now they have to do the same thing that his 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 previous team did, get past the big upset and take on another quality squad. And so far, a little bit of a slow start for Texas against the Gamecocks. And there is or one I more say, game. game. See you next Tuesdays. Mm, oh, yeah, but we're, we're ending the, the lady. Uh, the, see you next Tuesdays. <laughs> the lady bears uh, is, is the whole catalyst for all this. That yeah, Baylor calls yeah. their team the lady bears, which sounds far less. It's like, Hey guys, it's just the lady bears hanging out. Like that just doesn't. You it's know, also weird because bears are not inherently male. So why do they get, why do they got to be ladies unless they're the gentleman bears and the lady bears? And then maybe I, I also I, like picturing them in suits and ties and a nice gown with pearls. I did not know the anatomy of bears. I'm going to be honest well, about I, that. I'd like to think you could assume that there were boys and girls. I mean, I figured. I just didn't know that, you know. I think seahorses I, I, I don't know how to tell the difference between a male or a female. Okay. Uh, I've never Louisville observed is... it myself either, but I imagine it's a pretty standard set of materials down there. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, next time I'm in the woods, I'm just going to go slap a bear on the butt and go. see how things go. Find out. Uh, it's my, you know, because, uh, okay. Stanford-Louisville is the one game we haven't <laughs> talked about so far on this uh, on the landscape of the games tonight. And it's a one versus a two seed. I think it's going to be the best game we get on either side. It, it's, it's a more even matchup, I should say, than I feel like we're going to get from anything on the men's side tonight. I am not sure about that. I I agree that it should be based on seeding, but I just think Stanford's offense is so multifaceted, so hard to slow down that I'll be very interested to see how how uh, the Cardinals appre- uh, approach that. I just for me I feel like um you know, what we've seen from Stanford so far in the tournament has only supported my belief that they were the overall favorite beyond even some of the other teams and uh it's going to be a tough task for Louisville. Yeah, you are right, by the way. Overall, top seed is something I think we forget sometimes for Stanford and how good this team is. Uh, I'm just looking for something to be competitive. I don't, I don't feel yeah. like we're going to get anything on the men's side, and we're already seeing what we're what we're going to see uh, from the South Carolina-Texas side, which, by the way, is now up to 18-7. to So that game on the women's side, not it's giving early. us a lot it's of It's early. <laughs> it, it's it's early. And what did we see last night? I mean, sir, oh, and USC's on the board on the men's side. You know, they've got two points now, so maybe we'll get some sort of glory. We'll keep you obviously caught up on everything you need to know throughout the course of the night. Can't promise any professionalism if these these games yeah, get tight. We did our best last night. That's all you can ask for. It's like one night a week for us to handle that. In the meantime, <laughs> you know that we uh, enjoy the opportunity to focus on certain people that are accomplishing incredible things, certain people that are changing the landscape of sports that are around them and that are doing things that break down all all the walls that may be surrounding them and what they do. So coming up, Game Changers. We're going to feature someone overseeing tremendous tremendous growth in one sport. And I'm going to learn how to talk. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz. (laughs) Sure. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. That's right. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We'll get back to the NCAA games and update you on the official who just collapsed and was stretchered off. Seems okay now. We'll give you updates on that as soon as we get it. Uh, But it's Game Changers time. Very excited for our next guest. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. She joins us on the Goodyear Hotline. It's Kathy Engelbert, WNBA commissioner, not only the first official commissioner of the WNBA, but the first female CEO of Deloitte from 2015 to 2019 before switching over to sports. Kathy, I want to get into tons of stuff for the 25th season of the WNBA, but let's start with that pivot for you, working at Deloitte for over 30 years and then joining the WNBA. 
Uh, yeah, Sarah, it's great to be here. Yeah, I, I was just blessed to have this great, you know, over three-decade career uh, with a, a firm like Deloitte and led to me becoming the CEO at a time where I got a, a front seat to transformation, the evolution of technology and digital change. So, you know, at the end of my term there, I was like, I'd really like to do something different with a, a broad women's leadership platform and something I had a passion for. And I had played college basketball at Lehigh University, and I was coached by Muffet McGraw, who went on to be a Naismith Hall of Fame coach at mm -hmm. Notre Dame. And my dad was drafted in 1957 by the Detroit Pistons, so that was a fun part of the story that you know, basketball has always been in my DNA. Uh, and so, you know, just um, it seemed to make sense after a long career to do something, you know, that I had a big passion for. And um, and boy, has it been <laughs> an incredible 19 months or so, and uh, it's just been really great. How did coming over from a non-traditional background in that sense, I mean, coming from the corporate world over to the WNBA, how did it really impact the beginning of your reign as the WNBA commissioner? Yeah, it's a great question, Jason. Um, you know, first, you know, I come in and I think I was in day four and we started the uh, negotiations around the collective bargaining agreement. So I think it was great to have a business, um, you know, background to start that negotiation. And although I hadn't had a union workforce um, before at Deloitte, but, you know, certainly have dealt with my share of crises like, you know, the 2008 financial crisis and extensive scenario planning. And then, quite frankly, to use that business experience when we hit the pandemic, where we were in big crisis management mode at this time last year as everything was shutting down, but we knew we, we wanted to have a season. So, um, so yeah, it's it's been interesting to and, – and, and, by the way, sports is very big business, and it's not as different as everyone thinks. Um, I think the constituents in the ecosystem are a little different than certainly what I dealt with before. Um, working with clients in the Fortune 500, but now I have, you know, owners, a board of governors, the union, the Players Association, players, media, um, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just kind of been fun to get on board and, and work through some of the crisis that we've been faced with. WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert with us here for Game Changers on Spain and Fitz. You mentioned it being a business. We've been talking about that a lot in women's sports lately, especially the idea of needing to treat more nascent and emerging leagues, less so the WNBA, which is in its 25th season, but in general, the idea of women's sports being so young compared to these centuries-long men's leagues as more of a startup where the investment has to be legitimate and the belief has to be there to get past those initial years. I wonder how difficult it is for you to be commissioner of a league where a lot of the public-facing arguments about the league's slow growth especially from people like Adam Silver, who's very much on the side of the WNBA, but is sort of straddling this line between the two leagues, is to publicly state the losses. That's not something that other growing businesses do. And how do you react to higher up people presenting that as if it as if it's going to help in any way? Well, I think the great thing about Adam and his support of the WNBA is that's why he hired me with a long history of business experience and gave me this you know, commissioner title to get the seat at the table to really transform this league, look at the economic model, look at how we can grow, you know, the top line and have it drop to the bottom line and all the things I did, you know, in my career at Deloitte. And um, so I, I think that's exactly exactly what I was hired to do. And and really, you know, look at, you know, the valuation model for women's sports, which is the one thing I was surprised, you know, as you look at the ecosystem and how, you know, a, a patch on the uniform or a placement on the court or a media right Right, see that that's where the disparity starts, and therefore, you know, we were able to negotiate. I think a very progressive and holistic collective bargaining agreement, but it's on the wings of potentially getting this ecosystem to step up 
and really support women's sports. And we couldn't be at a better time of momentum. And I think having a season last year, having the strong voice of the WNBA players uh, out there uh, throughout and now through the offseason and an amazing uh, free agency period with lots of movement, um, you know, and, and as you said, you know, we're fortunate to be the WNBA to be the only women's professional sports league to get to our 25th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't be more pleased with how strong we're coming into the season with the momentum and, and how these players have really stepped up, not just on the court, but off the court as well. We're talking to WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. And it's always interesting to me to figure out one chapter to the next, Kathy. And you just mentioned the upcoming 25th season. So I'm going to give you a crystal ball and ask you a difficult question to to try and predict here. But what's the biggest challenge for the WNBA in your mind for the next 25 years? Yeah, uh, again, it's transforming the valuation model for women's sports so that when we're in the next negotiations for whether it's a media rights deal, uh, bringing in more sponsors, that they see the value not based on just traditional metrics that they use in the men's league, but also uh, new metrics that, you know, by the way, might not be quantitative in nature. They might be qualitative, like the diversity, equity, and inclusion that our league represents. So I, I think there's a variety of things where we can move the needle over the next 25 years, certainly it's media rights. It's all the platforms now. Obviously, that whole industry is being disrupted. Uh, and, you know, uh, how uh, d- digital platforms have become so important in sports. Are there adjacencies the WNBA can lead in, like legalized sports betting, like esports for women, and other type of things that if you're running a league that stands for the power of women, what are the other things that you can do to grow revenue and to be a leader uh, and that's that's what all the things we're working on. And, and again, the next 25 years, we have to work on marketing, building household names, rivalries, because that's when fans want to come watch, right? Whether it's in arena or on the different platforms that I think sports will be offered on over the next 25, uh, next decade, for sure, into 25 years. It's so true. Kathy Ungelbert, the WNBA commissioner with us here on Spain and Fitz, that sort of ease of finding and being exposed to sports, it being water cooler talk, it being stuff you debate at the bar, all of that is such a huge part of the social aspect of being a fan. And it's just harder to access in women's sports because of the omnipresence of the the men's game and how long it's been around the nostalgia connected to so many people having seen it since they were kids. Um, It's a huge aspect of continuing to grow the game. We saw growth last year. I wonder uh, what you were able to pinpoint about last season that made you uh, connect that to the increased ratings and support. Yeah, I think number one, I think our partners stepped up and our media partner ESPN stepped up. We had broader coverage, more in-depth coverage while we were in our so-called bubble, our WNBA bubble. Uh, And, you know, um, it's kind of a usually a circular argument like, we don't want to, you know, when, when, you know, partners or sponsors say, you know, you don't have enough eyes on the game. And I said, well, until you give us exposure, mm-hmm. we can't get more eyes on the game. So you kind of get in this never-ending circle. So I think last year we had more eyes on the game because we had more coverage and more in-depth coverage and more analysis around it and, and really interesting stories on the court with Asia Wilson, who ended up as our league MVP with uh, Stewie, Brianna Stewart coming back and leading Seattle along with Sue Bird in her 17th year and her fourth championship. So think about just those three players and the stories that you could tell and market off of to bring people into. And obviously Vegas and Seattle ended up in the WNBA finals. Uh, And and it was also about, um, you know, kind of digital innovation. I'm a big fan of when you're in the middle of a crisis like we were last year with the pandemic, 
um, you know, you got to innovate, you know, because that innovation will serve you well when you come out. So with no fans in our arenas last year and and wanting to engage fans at a higher level, we innovated around what we call the Tap to Cheer app. That app resulted in 140 million taps on it by fans sitting at home watching us uh, on the network. So that, that was a huge reason, you know, to bring that in. And then fans got competitive. In one game, we had 4 million taps uh, just in one game. And, and so, you know, you've got to find ways to engage your fans in different ways. Second screen experiences, for instance, um, you know, uh, fan trivia. We're going to be doing a lot around the 25th anniversary to look back, but also, you know, key on today and how these players have evolved and, and how they re- many of the younger players represent the future of the league. Before we let you go, let's ask about that. The Count It, the special edition logo, the new in-season competition, all the other plans. Uh, you got to tell us about that before we end this. Yeah, so our 25th season, we did a couple weeks ago, announce our talent campaign to count all the accomplishments that the WNBA has had over 25 and, and to continue to count those that, that are to come over, over the next 25. And, you know, new new uniforms, which Nike will be unveiling, new ball that Wilson unveiled a couple weeks ago. Uh, as you said, Sarah, the in-season special competition, which will uh, offer the players a prize, the winner, winning team a prize pool, uh, called the Commissioner's Cup, and again, um, you know, we're just, you know, going to theme that and get it sponsored and, you know, other opportunities to grow the game and grow an interesting in-season competition. We will have the Olympic break this year, uh, so coming off the Olympic break is when we'll play the Commissioner Cup final to retip the season, so lots of plans, again, to, um, you know, really capitalize on the momentum that was built coming off of last season into this season. And we have unintentionally seen some of those new jerseys that got leaked to one retailer, but we're still looking forward to the full official release and the hope that Elena Deladon's name will be spelled correctly when we actually get those jerseys out on the market. I'm pumped for this season. I'm so pumped to see the growth off of last year in the Wubble. And uh, the, the league is in good hands, Kathy. Thanks so much for giving us some time tonight. Yes, thanks, Sarah and Jason. And stay safe and healthy. Getting fired up for the WNBA season coming up sooner than we know it. Coming up next on Spain and Fitz, a little nod to the pod. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. When the uh, hate messages come flying, it's either a day ending in Y or a day that I've released some content relating to a hot button issue. And today's both. So uh, it's extra, extra spicy on the Menchies today. It's Spain and Fitz, Harris Bain, Jason Fitz. ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. And my podcast this week is with two very spectacularly informed people. Chris Mosier, who's been on my podcast before, um, who's an incredible USA triathlete and activist, three-time national champion Muay Thai fighter, and Lieberman, who uses they-them pronouns, also joined me on the pod this week. And the two of them talked about the very, very current, very important issue of trans inclusion in sports and we want to do a little something that we used to do and haven't done as much recently, which we call Nod to the Pod. Here's this week's Nod to the Pod. That's right. It's where we take a couple clips from a podcast and get into a little discussion around them. And Fitz, I'm so glad you wanted to talk about this because for me, the reason I had them on is I really wanted to tackle an issue that I think is so underreported and discussed to the point of people not having the information needed to really understand this slate of bills that are being proposed across the country, 30 states, over 60 bills specifically focused on anti-trans athletes bans, nearly 115 overall anti-transgender bans, including health care. And if you include all anti-LGBTQ plus 
uh, bills, over 160 of them. So one of the worst legislative times in recent memory for trans and LGBTQ plus people, most of it inspired by fear mongering and a lack of evidence. And, and that's why I wanted to have these two on to really get to the heart of the issues. Um, and one thing that we talked about and that I want to play some sound from Chris on is the idea that there have been policies in place across the country, including at the NCAA and Olympic level and in many states that are inclusive, that have been around for a decade where there haven't been any issues. Uh, and all of a sudden, particularly after the Marriage Equality Act passed, particularly after the, the so-called bathroom bills were proposed and shot down, um, particularly Christian conservative groups were looking for a political cudgel to use, and they found the idea of trans girls participating in sports to be one that they could wield and scare people with. Uh, here's what Chris had to say on the podcast. That's what she said with Sarah Spain about who's driving all these uh, bills. So what we're seeing right now is that a lot of the the storytelling that's happening both through campaigns from this particular group and many others, as well as the storytelling that, that's happening from what the lawmakers have been fed, because let's be very clear about this. These are not driven by lawmakers as individuals. These are people who have been targeted by these national hate groups as carriers of this message. And when we hear mm-hmm. these people talking about it, they can't show the receipts. They can't back up the science. They don't have the science. They don't have the athletes. They don't have examples to point to to say that this is actually a problem. We've been talking in broad sweeping generalizations and stereotypes and myths about the trans community that have been rooted in the narrative of the way trans people have been covered in pop culture for decades, if not hundreds of years. Fitz, I think that's so important, right? The idea that so many people who don't know any trans people personally have of trans people is so extreme because it's almost always presented either as the butt of a joke or something to be feared. I think one of the most important things is that they don't have the science. That statement, I think, really, really hit me hard when I heard it, Sarah. And and look, I think, you know, for me, I have so many people in my life that fall into the LGBTQ category, but I don't have any trans friends. I, I just don't. And I've looked at myself and tried to figure out how to handle some of these issues when I don't have somebody that is in that living that space that I can talk to about their challenges and their struggles. That's why I was excited to talk to you about this. I mean, uh, so much of what I hear, too, when I have conversations, particularly even with uh, friends, family and people around in the South where I live so much, uh, uh, the, the conversation roots on, OK, well, there's a DNA difference between a man and a woman. And that means that the guy's going to be dominant at, at a girl's sport if they choose to compete in that because that's how they identify themselves. So to hear that that science doesn't exist, I think, is really an eye opening thing and a reminder that right now what we need to be having are real open conversations without preconceived notions about what's real instead of just what's perceived. Yeah. And what's interesting is, like I said, a lot of these policies have been in place and worked out just fine. It was only until very recently two young women, trans women in Connecticut, had some success in track and field. And because they won a fair amount of races, their success was then deemed proof that there was a, quote unquote, trans takeover or that women and girls who are trans are going to be inherently bigger and stronger and better than their cisgender peers, even though that doesn't actually get that gets showed out across evidence. In fact, there's very little research on trans athletes and it can't neatly be applied to those undergoing puberty, which is usually the time at which those who oppose trans inclusion claim the biggest differences happen. So much of that falls around the idea that testosterone isn't the ultimate indicator of whether you're good at sports. And particularly in the case of the Connecticut athletes, one of the loudest uh, 
you know, people yelling and, and proposing that they be banned from sports is a girl who finished sixth and her mother who used the opportunity to go on Fox News and and host a variety of shows and be on panels. And she was beaten by multiple cisgender girls, too. And none of them were a problem. It was just the one transgender girl that she decided it was unfair um, that her participation um, had in any way affected her standings. Um, What's unfortunate is that despite the lack of evidence to the benefits of testosterone alone, despite the fact of evidence in terms of this actually being a problem across the country, uh, those who are interested in using it for political gain don't really care and press on. And Ann Lieberman on the podcast talked about that. The thing that makes this this conversation so challenging is even when presented with the facts, even presented with the science, even with presented with with the fact that trans kids are going to be a greater risk for suicide and potentially even die. People have such deeply held beliefs about what bodies assigned male at birth and what bodies assigned female at birth can and cannot do. So getting folks even open to having a conversation to think about something that's different than what they've been told or led to believe their entire lives is incredibly challenging. And so really the conversations we try to have with folks is to humanize the conversation, to talk about, is this what you would want for your kid? To talk about our experiences as athletes, to really bring it to a much more human level because the science and the facts often don't work because this conversation is so fear-based. Yeah, that's, I mean, some of the suggestions from people involve genital exams, uh, confirming chromosomes to make sure that their natural hormones fall within a certain range, things that could be incredibly traumatic for children. And again, it's, it's always based in the idea that there's a belief that girls can only be so good or strong or fast before they're no longer, quote unquote, girls, whether by choice or identity. Well, I, I just have to say, like, all I have to do is look in the mirror and then look at, you know, any of the the women that are UFC fighters and realize that I could identify as a woman all day long. It wouldn't make me tougher than any of them because I'm a man like that. There has to be some reasonable like yet the real world application of this. Like we all need to pull our heads out of the sand at some point and try and figure this out. I, I just it's an important listen for your podcast this week because there's so much information that people need. Aggr- to get. The education matters. And I hope you guys all take a chance to listen to it. I think it makes a difference. Jordan Cornett's going to join us next. Talk NCAA attorney. It's Bain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by progressive insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear hotline, the NCAA tournament is going on as we speak. We've got games in action right now on both sides, on the men's end, on the women's side. Just to get you a couple quick updates on the women's side right now, South Carolina, the top seed, uh, is beating Texas, the sixth seed, 37-22 in that one. And then on the men's side currently, I'm going to give you guys some really deep dive analysis here. Gonzaga is good at basketball. Whoa, They're up 43 26. I know. I don't I want to use all my you. mojo early. I don't but, want you, know, you to have to whew. listen to this later and take it back. You know, it, it, we're going to bring in some expertise now. Jordan Cornett joining us from the ACC Network. Jordan, I don't know how you're going to top that sort of deep dive analysis, but <laughs> I am willing to say right now, Gonzaga is good at the game of basketball. How do you like that? take. Hey, Fitzy, Sarah Spain, you said it. I don't know what you need me for here. I mean, they are a well-oiled machine. They are an offensive juggernaut. 
crazy thing to me is, for those watching the game, I mean, Gonzaga's on pace to score 100 points. They're tracking towards that. They've got 45 with about 90 seconds left in a first stanza and a 17-point lead. And they have done this with two threes. They've made only two threes. Mm. Everything is coming inside the arc. And what is crazy about that is that was the Trojans' best chance, making an inside-the-arc game, kind of control and guard. The Trojans have the best two-point percentage defense in a history of college basketball. And they're going against Gonzaga, who has the best two-point percentage offense in a history of college basketball. And it's leaning heavily in the favor of Gonzaga right now. And we're seeing the same thing on the women's side right now, as we pointed out earlier. South Carolina off to a hot start now, 37-22 against Texans. We can still hear you, Jordan. Can you hear us? Well, we might have lost him. Fitz, can you hear me? I can hear you, Sarah. All we right, can great. keep talking well, about Jordan. We can I mean, keep we talking. Uh, like we said earlier, Texas still trailing South Carolina by a good margin at the half, so that looks like we're hoping to get closer games in the later stanza. You know, when Jordan was uh, filling in with me on Spain and Company, we once surprised uh, him by having his wife nope, join and do a little quiz. And uh, I guess today Jordan surprised Shay on Shanae and Golic Jr. Um, so while he's still figuring out his, uh, his comrex and his ability to chat with us, I wanted to point out a name that they have bandied about on social media for their soon-to-be-born child, Cade, because he likes Cade Cunningham, which I don't really care about the player, but Cade Cornett? That sounds like a Hall of Fame quarterback. No, Cade Cornett sounds like a prep school kid that gets beat up. I'm out on Cade Cornett. Ooh, Come on. Like a, du- mean- like a Duke player who trips people? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Kate, like Jason Cornett. Now that's got a ring to it. I'm not saying he has to name his kid after Wait me, but Jason minute. Cornett, Hold like on. that has what? What? No, no, what? no, no. You really don't like Cade Cornett? It sounds too preppy no. to you. Cade Cornett feels like okay. So we're watching a Law and Order, like from the '90s, <laughs> where they're all wearing the prep school jackets, and nobody wants to admit to who was really in the parking lot after school. Right. Cade Cornett's Cade. in that episode. It was Cade. Definitely. Darn yeah, it Cade all. Jordan, I'm down with Cade Cornett, but Fitz just said it sounds like a prep prep school kid who gets arrested. Uh, thoughts? <laughs> well, so so in one in one realm, it's got an edge because it's got a record. But then the prep part, I don't love. I just don't. Fitz, you're coming from the top rope. That's the only name I've been able to push through to Shay that she's giving actual consideration to. I hope she's not hearing this on her drive home from filling in for today on today and Golik today because that will not put me in a good spot. Uh, is there? You guys do not know the gender, though, right? Like, there's been no consideration uh, for that yet, right? There has been, yes. Again, a, a totally driven Shea Cornette decision to not know uh, the gender of the child, which is surprising because this is the same woman who gives me a birthday gift two weeks in advance because she can't stand waiting to give it to me. But she's been <laughs> disciplined and waiting for this surprise, and we're just going to wait and see. Would, well, would Cade I, I be like male Cade. or female? That's the real question. Like, could Cade, because Cade's sort of universal, you could go either way. Yeah, it could definitely go either way, but now we know where you truly stand on it. Yeah. I mean, Sarah, why Yikes. are you even talking about the name anymore? He I know. Well, in order what prep a school, jerk. I'm just saying, I Cade, mean, Cade honestly, Cornette. I really liked it. I said Hall of Fame quarterback, but now that Fitz put it in my head that he's like a laxer for like uh, some prep school out east who gets arrested for you yeah. know damaging school property, now I can't get it out of my head. At the beginning of the episode of Law and Order, he's the favorite. By the end of it, he's the one that masterminded the the whole thing. That's Cade. That's Cade. You you (laughs) too. This has been. You don't know the life arc that this appearance on radio has done for my life. Oh no! You now talked me off of Cade. (laughs) Wow! Oh my gosh! We're responsible for your child's name. (laughs) 
you guys have just ruined it. I, I, this the power has totally changed the trajectory <laughs> of that young child's life. Who would have known? Wow, known? incredible! Now I'm going to start brainstorming some names so I can like be the result. Like I could be the responsible for the name. Uh, Jordan Cornette from the ACC Network, ESPN, <laughs> former host of Spain and Company back in the good old days before Fitz came back and. And started raining on everyone's parade by <laughs> attacking their baby names. Um, Jordan, what are the big takeaways for you from this uh, from this tournament? Like big picture. Uh, you know that that it's been a perfect balance, honestly, Sarah. To me, and you look at the tournament field, is you you you've had those moments where you've seen the upsets, the Max Ace misses of the world for Oral Roberts, the Newton's leading scorer being discovered by the nation in this tournament, having a couple wins, generating some of those upsets. Oregon State pick last in the Pac-12, putting respect on their name, going on a nice run. But now with all these upsets that have kind of given the foundational um, allure of why people enjoy this tournament, we've had that. But now we're on a precipice, it appears, of having potentially three one-seeds and a two-seed in the Final Four. So you get that payoff of upsets. That's why I love March Madness, but I also want to see the great teams determine this in the end. And it looks like we're headed on that collision course. To me... Everyone's so high on Gonzaga, deservedly so. Chasing history, first team since 1976 in Indiana to run the gamut and go undefeated. But you've got a Baylor team that matches up really nicely with them, have looked every bit the part at number one. Scott Drew could be the guy who turns around a program in a rebuild that's better than any rebuild I've ever seen in all of sport, what he's doing there at Baylor. And, oh, by the way, Jawan Howard, the Fab Five and the history there, could he generate through to the final game his number one Michigan team and bring the first title in 21 years of that conference? There's a ton of storylines. It's great. Stick there for a second, Jordan, with Michigan because I feel like once the uh, once we saw the injury, everybody was out, and then uh, it seemed like nobody was really taking them as seriously as Baylor and Gonzaga. Do you think they have a, a legit shot at beating those teams if they need to for a national championship? Yeah, I do, Jason. Just because they're, they're a team that is top 10 in, def- in, in efficiency on both offensive side of it and defensive side of it. And they've had now a few games to kind of determine, okay, the shots that weren't coming from a guy in Livers are coming from a guy in Theo Johns coming off the bench. So there, or Brandon Johns, excuse me, coming off the bench. So there's guys for this team that are stepping up making plays. Michigan hasn't really skipped a beat. They move it well. Hunter Dickinson at 7-2, you can play through him. I'm just trying to decide what team – if they win this thing is best for the sport in terms of, do we get that momentum going into next year? And I I'm starting to think Michigan with that brand, that passionate uh, Midwestern fan base, the big 10, his name, what he can do for Michigan basketball might be in fact, the best thing for the sport moving forward, because it's all about garnering those eyes and bringing them back after what's been a topsy turvy season because of COVID. But there've been problems in years past as well. Well, Jordan, uh, listen, we have to let you go. We're going to have to have you on again sometime soon. It's been too long. There's so much to get to. Uh, now I'm determined to name your child. Uh, what's the <laughs> countdown? We're almost there, right? How many days we got? We got, we're got. we within four weeks, Sarah, so it, it could really feel like it's any day. And I will tell you guys this. You know you get on radio, you got to be nice to the host. You know I legitimately <laughs> love you guys, and I wish I could Aww. be on the show the rest of the night. Like, please <laughs> have me back. I will go long. You know that, Sarah. Fitzy, you know that as well. Uh, but it's great to be on with you guys tonight. All right. I'm looking up names for the rest of the night, and yes, we will have to Jason. Soon. It should be we're, Jason Cornette. Jason Cornette no. has a good mm-hmm. ring to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Spain it's Cornette. Sure. I mean, you'd be naming Entire your child after another Dave. man, but still. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> we're, we're, but it's Fitz, 
see. I mean, it works. I mean, yeah, I mean, we already got lot. Shay and Jay. We want another Jay in the mix? I think absolutely yeah. not. Listen, we're going to put together some top tens each, and the next time you're on, you can tell us who did a better job and consider some of the names. I think that's the way to do it. I, I love that, and I would like to weed through some of these names. You could really help me in these next four weeks. It'd be on something it. instructive to keep my anxiety kind of at bay. <laughs> you ready. got it, my friend. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, Jordan. Be well. Have a great night, guys. ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance. At Progressive, they're making things even easier, unlike me with the naming issue. They'll help you bundle your home and car insurance together so you can save on both. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Coming up, he's still the one for now. We'll explain next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. And Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app and Sirius XM channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests are going to join us on the Goodyear Hotline. We'll get back to the NCAA action throughout the course of the night. But uh, also, obviously, a lot of eyes have been on the San Francisco 49ers. And it really comes into play today, Sarah, because we also got some pro days as Justin Fields was out there throwing to Casper the Friendly Ghost and also the wide receivers that are out there running against Casper the Friendly Ghost. And it's always funny to me when we see these pro days and there's this massive reaction from people about the way a quarterback looks when they're running around, nobody's chasing them, and they're throwing to wide-open receivers. Like, uh, the last time I checked, I don't think any of that has anything to do with football. So as we have all eyes on the 49ers for moving up to three in the draft, presuming they're going to go after a quarterback, I just don't know why anything we see in a pro day from Justin Fields or anybody else should impact where people think their draft status lies. Yeah, listen, I mean, for us in particular, there's nothing to be gained from seeing a guy with premeditated throws to open people in a non-game situation. Maybe for the very, very, very expert among us, they can talk about things like the ball flying off his hand, right? Or liking the footwork a little bit more. But all of those things, again, really need to be applied in a game context. And with both of the guys we saw today, um, we have that. You know, I understand for somebody who has limited college experience or didn't play much last year at all, that this might be the only thing you got because you don't have enough game tape and there is no official combine. But for these guys, we've seen them all season long. And the questions that we have about Mac Jones are not going to be answered at a pro day. It's, is his athleticism a problem? Is his lack of speed a problem? How will he fare against faster, bigger, more athletic defenders at the at the uh, professional level? And you're not going to get that from today. In fact, the only thing I would say about a second pro day for him, where at least he got to throw to better receivers, was they tried to do a little bit of fun you know, by having by having him catch a pass. And he looked worse than when, like, a nine-year-old gets thrown into, like, a field to have, like, a fun little catch with, like, some professional players. Like, he kind of jumped on the catch, and then it looked like almost like he landed kind of weird. Like, it was not anything that made me feel more confident about him on a field with some of the best athletes in the world. Well, absolutely. And, and I will say, I understand why there's going to be some emphasis on a pro day for somebody like Trey Lance, the kid out yep. of North Dakota State. Exactly. You know, with so little with so little evidence uh, tape on him, I should say one game. You got one since two one, years, right? <laughs> yeah, and and you got one full season as a starter, but it's also for North Dakota State. Like, let's be real; I'm not sure that a lot of people were paying a ton of attention to that. So you want to see him up close and personal. That makes some sense. But when you're talking about Mac Jones or Justin Fields, you're talking about two guys that have so 
much tape on them at success against great teams, success against high-level opponents. I mean, there's enough to break down there that I don't think you can see anything in that process and suddenly have it feel like what you're seeing is going to change someone's mind. Barring a drastically bad pro day where suddenly you find out that they can't hit anybody when they're wide open, I don't think a good pro day does much. Now, that being said, the 49ers are part of this conversation because there's a lot of conversation about what they're going to do. They've they've decided they're moving up to number three. They've made that trade. But Kyle Shanahan, the Niners head coach, has been adamant Jimmy Garoppolo is still their starter. It's going to be hard to find a quarterback that gives us a better chance to win than Jimmy right now, uh, especially even a rookie in the draft. Um, so that's what you look into. Now, if someone wanted something for that and it can make your team better in a lot of other ways, you listen to that, but it also depends on how good you feel about that rookie. And we're not there yet right now. And odds are we probably won't be. That's why we're happy that we don't have to be that way. Uh, we got a guy in here who we know we can win with, a guy that our players love, that we love. Um, and uh, we're excited to have him this year, and we're excited to have a hell of a quarterback right behind him um, learning from when the time's his. I mean, if you loved him, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. But I will say that I actually appreciate – for the, for the sake of the conversation around Jimmy G and the moves that they just made to move up in the draft, I respect that they came out and they're talking about it because we gas bags were going to have plenty of opinions on it and make things really awkward for Jimmy G there. And instead, they talked to him and then they talked about it publicly and they shared it. And because Jimmy G gets hurt so much, it's a lot harder for him to protest, right? He has to admit, we've had a good team. I haven't been able to stay healthy, and that has taken us out of the running. They need to go out and look for someone in case I get hurt again. Now I'm going to be motivated to try to get my next contract or to try to keep my starting job. So this is okay. Like, this is the situation that we're in. It's sort of inevitable. What I don't understand is all the conversation around the 49ers and the surety that people who are tight with the people up up top over there have that they're going for Mac Jones. Because while you might think it's the right fit for Shanahan's offense and everything else, why are you given so much to move up to get a guy who's such a question mark? There is a much bigger upside, from, in my opinion, for Fields. So even if you don't think he's a Shanahan kind of guy, if if you're going to end up going for him, I, I don't understand talking about it so publicly and people close to the team talking about it so publicly. It has me wondering if we're getting duped during lying season. Yeah, well, I think that's the hardest part about this is like, it's like game night with all your friends and you've got that one friend that you know is just like playing the game so well you can't tell like are they telling the truth are they lying you have no idea and that's where we are with the 49ers now because it seems so unusual to see a move this early and then to see this much transparency about the move like it's either incredibly refreshingly honest or right. it is an absolutely spectacular April Fool's joke like there's not a lot of in between on it but the strategy Sarah makes a lot of sense to me because if they are moving up to three because they're in love with Trey Lance for example the kid we were just talking about or even Zach Wilson out of BYU who who looks like he might be really good but we don't know. I mean, playing against BYU, is, uh, their opponents, is a far different Sunday than, than playing on Sundays, right? So if they want to protect themselves, like the strategy makes sense. You give Jimmy G all the time, you let your, your quarterback develop, and then you hope Jimmy G plays so lights out that he can go on and do something else for somebody. I mean, that, the, the strategy makes sense the way they're explaining it. We're just not used to seeing that sort of transparency before a draft. Yeah, and that's why it has me suspect. We've seen... Lynch before pull some okie dokes on people by professing interest in someone and picking someone else by you know messing with the bears around the Trubisky stuff. So I just feel like it's strange to hear so much from, for instance, Chris Sims, who's a friend of Shanahan's, to hear from folks who claim to know how he operates and what he wants. 
again, this was a very early move. And because of that, it gives us a lot more time to hear and talk and whisper and wonder what's going on over there and why they felt it was necessity to do that move so early. Um, and again, Fitz, it, it's, I, I like the boldness of it. I like the fact that they think they've got a lot going for them right now. So they want to really make sure they have the quarterback position shored up. I just wonder if they really, if it's Mac Jones is the guy, if they really felt like they needed to be at three for that. Spain and Fitz brought to you by Goodyear. Celebrating March deal days with month-long service and savings. Visit GoodyearAutoService.com for offers. And Sarah, you're so right. If they moved up to three to take Mac Jones or, or any quarterback that's not one of the ones that people are infatuated with at this point, I think there's going to be a lot of yelling in the first day of the draft about fans that are looking at it saying, wait, we moved up to there to get him? And that's the inevitability that will come if they take any sort of a, a strange move here because there will be real questions about did they have to move all the way up to three? Could they have moved to six or seven? Could they have done this in a way where they didn't have to give up as much equity? So not only do they need to get the right guy, but they got to make sure they do it in a way that the fan base feels like they got the right value. Coming up, a bonus edition of Game Changers. We'll talk to someone who's changing how female athletes are represented. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. In the world of men's professional sports, many women are breaking through and making their mark. They're not going to be looking at him sideways. The reason why I take so much objection He is literally running with the entire team. The NBA is actually facing backlash on both sides. Their stories are told here on Spain and Fitz. Time for this edition of Game Changers. A double dose of game changers today. Two incredible women. We talked to Kathy Engelbert, WNBA commish earlier. You can catch that on the pod if you miss it. But now joining us on the Goodyear hotline, we've got another fantastic woman. I'm so excited for this conversation. I loved reading all the stories about sports agent Lindsay Kagawa Colas. And there's a great one on Yahoo. I want to give a shout out to that one for some of the insight I got for this interview. Lindsay, it's on your mindset in approaching changing the game for the representation of female athletes, you know, with your work representing some of the biggest female names in sports and understanding your role with Wasserman. I want to hear you talk about sort of those early days of recognizing that you wanted representation for female athletes to look different. I I think, you know, it's funny because I can think about my entry into the business and maybe how that even ties into how people become fans. I met the women. Like Diana Taurasi was my first client. I'm sold, right? If you're going to hear no at all, which if you're not <laughs> hearing no as an agent, you're not asking for enough, it's going to be for D. And then right. I was one of the lucky ones and ended up with a client who the greatest compliment is sharing the resource. So it was through Diana that we built a roster. She picks them. And <laughs> it's never just about basketball. It's character and all the rest, right? But who better to say that's somebody that we want to support and we want to celebrate. So that was the start of my business is relying on, on Diana's insights into who fit what we were trying to do. And that was, you know, you've read it, but just this radical belief that the women deserve the same service as the men and they do. And so, you know, I, I fell into it almost by accident, but stayed in it on purpose because I really, really loved my clients. And I really, really believed that they were the heroes people were searching for. 
Lindsay, I think this is interesting because, you know, in, in my life, I, in music, I had an agent. In sports, I have an agent, right? And I think about what an agent's job is so often, and that's just to fight for opportunities, I, I would think, and hope for me. Mm-hmm. But you don't just to get to fight for your clients. You also have to fight for the health of your client's sport, right? I mean, there's this moment of like yeah. women's sports have to grow for your clients to have the platform they deserve. So how do you find the line between not just fighting for your, your clients, but also fighting for the overall sports that they play, which seems so crazy to me? Well, I mean, there is no line, right? Like I chose, I chose this because of my clients, but also because given my background and my interests, representing women and advocating for the importance of women in sport is really that, for me, the, that perfect intersection of social justice and sports business. So it was, it's always been a sweet spot and a place that I was really interested in. So I represent women that there's no difference. Right. Like you, you see the WNBA activism. You've heard a lot of them talk about, hey, I wake up and I am a black woman. Right. And then I go to work and I'm a WNBA player. But there's really no difference in my clients and what we fight for every day in their individual deals and that larger systemic conversation about why they should matter or perhaps why someone thinks they don't. We're talking to Lindsay Kagawa Colas, the executive VP of talent and the collective at Wasserman Media Group. I love that approach, and I feel the same way. I recently started saying after this popped into my head that so many of the women that I love rooting for are not just aspirational, which is always something we feel about athletes, but instructional. And I never felt that more so than Megan Rapinoe during the World Cup and the women's pay fight. And then Sue Bird and the WNBA players, when they were wearing their Vote Warnock shirts, they were trying to combat an owner that was very much against the principles that they stood for. But instead of engaging in a verbal war that only gave publicity to that owner, they instead pivoted to a meaningful campaign that ended up flipping the Senate how important is it to you to engage with the athletes that you represent on those issues that go well beyond what their contract might be for a sporting event? Oh, it's vital. It's vital because we represent the whole person and who they are dictates the strategy, not vice versa. You know, we happen to care about a lot of the same things. I think a lot of us here do. I know you two do, right? Um, and so it's really about crafting a strategy that speaks to them personally, that helps them advance their goals and the issues all tied up in the Vote Warnock, let's call it project. It was all stuff that matters to us as people. And yeah, we represent them for playing contracts, but these are people and these are the things that they care about. And when we, they need us to show up or when they need to show up, we show up for them. And so I think that the modeling and that aspiration and that instruction that you're talking about, I, I totally agree. And that's what makes these athletes so powerful is it's not just about performance. It's not just about what's happening on the court, you know, on the pitch, whatever it is. These are whole people and there are so many things about them that their fans engage with. It makes them really, really powerful ambassadors. Uh, It makes them really powerful teachers and their vulnerability and their ability or their willingness to say, I don't know, and to learn. I mean, these women are also really powerful because of their willingness to engage people to get smarter and to say, I don't know. You know, the Vote Warnock stuff didn't just happen. It was dozens and dozens of conversations asking questions to try and figure out the space and to try and figure out the move. There was you know, no assumption that we knew the answer on our own. So these women are not afraid 
to go outside themselves and lean into the expertise of people who are already established in the space, you know, movement leaders like Alicia Garza, having those conversations. I think it's a it's a superpower with these women. So, Lindsay, let me ask you then the counter question, not from my beliefs, but just to represent the question we hear so often. Uh I hate to say this phrase, but I'll say it. What would your response be to everybody that says when you're growing a sport, you should have your athletes stick to sports? Oh, I think that it's so simple, right? But I think if that's all they're good at, sure. But I think these women have so much more to offer. And again, whole person, like these are human beings who their sport may be a vehicle and a platform, but there are other pieces of their identity that are important to invest in and that they care about. Yeah, I I had Chelsea Handler on my podcast and she worded it in a way I'd never thought of before, which was essentially, so what you're saying is to people who have found a great deal of success in something, we don't think you're qualified to be wise or or educated or uh, useful in any other way, despite the fact that you've already proved that you can be incredibly successful. Like this, this needing to put people in Absolutely. boxes um, is so silly. We're talking to Lindsay Kagawa-Colas, the executive VP of Talent and the Collective at Wasserman Media Group. Represent some of our favorite athletes, uh, Sue Bird, Diana Taurasi, Brianna Stewart, Maya Moore. Uh, Sue Bird's new ad with Steph Curry is just the best and such awesome. a perfect example of how to change the game in a meaningful way that doesn't feel like pandering and is entertaining. Um, I want to ask about inclusion riders because I read about that in the story I mentioned earlier. And I, too, uh, heard Francis McDormand say that in a speech at an award show and thought, inclusion rider, okay, I'm Googling this. How did you incorporate that into the work you do? All the time. All the time is we think about it all the time. It happened to come to life, you know, a few years ago with Simone, and that was really exciting. But it's something that we we fight to include in every deal that we do in some way. We always are thinking about impact. We're always thinking about how to use any leverage that we have to affect change and create opportunity for others. And so when I heard that, that it's cool that you heard that too and, and got to Googling. I thought that the application in sports was very obvious and that when we have the opportunity to ask for something that could help a brand either celebrate something they were already doing or think a little bit beyond that and tie into an athlete's strategy in that way, why wouldn't we ask for it? Why doesn't everybody ask for it? And it doesn't have to be the same, you know, sort of writer, same sort of inclusion. But I mean, I posted, I think, yesterday about the power that an NBA player or anybody with leverage in a conversation has to ensure that other folks are taken care of or that we're thinking about who might be left out. There's a lot of power in being a person who somebody wants to do something. So why not have some ideas to bring to the table about the change that you want to see? Lindsay, what's something in your mind that people like me that are an advocate for women's sports could be doing to help the cause? Well, I actually have a Google Doc for this. It's uh, linked through my Instagram link tree. I wasn't sure what else to do. Um, because it seemed like, or we wish that everybody would ask us that, but there's a huge range of ways to make a difference. And, and I'm a big believer that everyone can. So is it a matter of being in a sports bar? Like, let's assume that we're all going back, right? You're in a sports bar, you're in a hotel lobby and there's games playing. If there's a, ask them to turn the WNBA game on. You might want to watch it anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. But Ask for that, like every bar I've ever been in. If there's a game on, I'm asking them to turn it on, right? Buy products that are spending money with 
women athletes. Buy tickets to games, buy jerseys. If you can't find them, ask why. You're in an airport. You know, no WNBA jerseys are sold at a single airport sports store right now. Mm. It's like actually shocking. Walk in, and this is a lot of pre-pandemic assumptions here. I have other ideas too. Don't worry. But walk in and ask who who buy who the buyer is. Write that buyer a note. You know, it doesn't have to be a protest. Like there are all types of small ways to help that go beyond you know even buying season tickets. Yeah, we're. Uh, I'm one of the new co-owners of the Chicago Red Stars, and we're in the midst of trying yes, to get congratulations. that happening. Thank you. In in the in O'Hare as well. Like we our our stuff is the Chicago crest. It's exactly something someone would want to grab on their way out of Chicago with the Chicago yep. flag and all the good stuff on it. So. Um, it comes back to, to just making it easy for people to become fans and to jump on board. And we all got to keep working on that. And you are a huge part thank of doing you. that. So thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. Um, I'm starting to think I might need You're to have so you welcome. on my podcast and talk even longer. This was really interesting. Uh, thanks so much for the time. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, mildly embarrassing close for me there. I think you just realized I, I acquired a massive girl crush on her throughout that interview, and now I'm going to stalk her and force her to come on my podcast and talk about more of that stuff. Really smart, a really good conversation. It's Spain and Fitz. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Drivers who save with Progressive save over $750 on average. Coming up, we'll update you on the actual tournament from officials to game scores and, of course, the most important tournament, Pandemic Madness! It's next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Lots of good stuff tonight. If you missed any of the show, it'll be in there probably tomorrow morning. This is going to be a slightly delayed one, so don't look for it tonight. Look for it tomorrow morning. And you can listen to all of our digital-only content. We'll be sure to have a little pre-party or after-party sometime this week, get you some good extra stuff. Uh, wanted to give you an update on some of the games quickly. Uh, South Carolina up on Texas, almost doubling them there at 62-34 with about a minute to play in that one. So that went about as expected. Gonzaga up uh, 64-43 on USC. They've got about 11:30 to play, maybe a little closer to 11 in the second. So that one also not looking to be very close. But we do have UCLA-Michigan coming up uh, a little bit later on the men's side. And we've got Louisville-Stanford, which we hopefully will be a closely contested one. We also have an update from the NCAA on the official. Mentioned it very briefly in the show earlier. But in the middle of that Gonzaga-USC game, Burt Smith, one of the officials, collapsed mid-game. A very scary moment. You heard the people uh, and saw the people tweeting about it that were there in person. The NCAA says Bert is alert and stable, will not be transported to a hospital, and has been in contact with his family. So very good news there. Scary moment fits. Uh, not contacted in any way, just collapsed and hit his head pretty hard, according to those there. Um, lots of people rushed to his aid and uh, thankfully is now alert and doing okay. And also there was a reserve official on site. So for anyone that was curious how they handle that, they had somebody else able to step in and uh, take over those duties right away. But the most important thing is that he seems to be uh, at least okay and uh, obviously a scary scene anytime you see somebody go down during a game. Absolutely. By the way, important note, tomorrow morning on Key J and Z, uh, 8, 10 Eastern, Brianna Stewart, four-time national champion, four-time player of the tournament, Overall, uh, fantastic badass. She's going to join them, give her insight on what could be another first freshman since her to get player of the tournament in Paige Beckers if UConn keeps rolling. But 
Plenty to get through still before she can claim that title and before they can get the win. Uh, By the way, official now, South Carolina has won that game. Texas headed home. Nice moment between Vic Schaefer and Don Staley, who faced each other a couple times in the tournament over the last decade or so. So um, got that number one seed advancing. I've got them winning in one of my brackets, Fitz. I don't know about you and which ones we're facing often, but are we still tied? I saw that you had – we are tied with the – not only are we tied with the same score, we're tied with the same max score, but you have – South Carolina in that one, and I have UConn. So interesting. One of us is going to win, and it's probably not me. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I uh, don't have a bracket of integrity at all. So I've got Stanford in one, and South Carolina in the other. So so far, so good for for me. But we will uh, we will see tonight when Stanford is in action. Uh, speaking of action, we've got action in our pandemic madness bracket. Let's go to that. Spain and Fitz present. Pandemic Madness. F*** you, 2020. That's right. We are officially giving a big middle finger to 2020 while also thanking some of the things that helped to get us through the tough times. And on the east side of the Sweet 16, Fitz, I have to say it went exactly how I would have voted which means everything is in its right place. Um, number one seed Schitt's Creek took out number five, redecorating the house. They advanced to the Elite Eight. The number two seed over there, Alcohol, taking out the number six seed, YouTube. That sounds about right to me. I think I joined three wine clubs in 2020. Oh, my God. Good for you. Yeah. And Good I also found you. a local bartender who was away from the restaurant during the uh, specific quarantine part, and he was making cocktail mixes, and you could order them in PayPal, and then he would pick them up on his porch and mix them with the liquor you had at home. So when I got sick of wine, perfect. Oh, good um, for you, yeah. <laughs> and then I was just helping the community is really what was going on there. Supporting small businesses. small businesses. Number one seed sweatpants took out number four bulk toilet paper, and they will face cooking Number six seed taken out a number two TikTok in the Elite Eight. And Fitz, I think, as I said yesterday, that shows the age of us and most of our listeners and followers. I think TikTok would have swung the other way for the youngsters. I don't know, though. Probably. You're probably right. I will just say this, though. A lot of people at least figured out how to cook something like, because even the sourdough bread phenomenon is looped into mm-hmm. cooking in some way. It is. So, right. Banana I, I bread, like... sourdough, <laughs> right? Everyone yeah. subscribing to New York Times cooking. Like at some point, TikTok. I mean, that's good for a certain section of the audience, but more people cook. That, that at least Agreed. that's the hope I have. Or we're old. Agreed. And I think we also all feel better about how cooking makes us feel versus yeah. just sitting and being like, "How was that two hours of watching teenagers dancing?" Uh, we will open up the east half of the Sweet Sixteen. It's going to look like this. Some really tough ones on this side, Fitz. I think some of these are going to be tight. Number one, Zoom parties. A lot of people like them. A lot of people hate them. Taking on number five, going braless slash pantsless. Sometimes those were combined. I I think plenty of people did Zoom parties without a bra or pants on. Nobody could see most of the time, and if they did, no one cared. We've also got number three, video games. Taking on number two, Ted Lasso. The fervor for Ted Lasso is strong. But limited. Not everyone has seen Ted Lasso, whereas video games, a lot of people video spend games a lot is of gonna time. Crush this one. This is this is. Really? I'm predicting okay. a blowout right. win here. I'm predicting a blowout. That's possible. I don't know if yeah. you understand the power of the Lassoites, Lassonians. No, as Lasonians, I like that better. I haven't Thank seen the you. show still yet, so I yeah, feel like maybe part of the because I play a lot of video games uh, in you know what little free time I have. 
uh, that video games are my go-to. So uh, my own bias here. Like, I just That's feel like true. video games are going to win. I don't play video games, and I'm obsessed with Ted Lasso, so I would tell you, believe. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> number one, The Last Dance, duh, taking on number five, Tiger King, which jumped the shark like almost a full year ago. So if that one is gone wrong, I, I, I might have to I think that one's going to be close. I think it's probably going to be close, and it's going to make me angry. I'll tell you that because <laughs> I was already angry about Tiger King taking out Club Quarantine. And then oh, finally, man. we've got number six, online shopping, taking on number two, long walks. Again, I like online shopping. What are you shopping for? I mean, we didn't need any new clothes, and that's the fun kind of online shopping. Uh, you know what I mean? I did a lot of online shopping, but I feel like walks felt more restorative to me. I don't know. For me, like, there's just something about opening Amazon and buying something I don't need that at least makes me feel good in the moment. I think online shopping is going to pull the upset. Retail therapy. Uh, I just feel like that's, like, more normal. You know what I mean? Like, I'm always doing that, whereas long walks took a massive part of my time and and really made me feel better about life. Uh, You can vote at Sarah Spain, at Spain and Fitz, at Jason Fitz. Freddie and Fitzsimmons coming up next. Thanks so much for listening to Spain and Fitz. On ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.